The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing uh, working our way through John. Um, I want to ask you a question this morning. Does injustice bother you? I mean, does it make you furious when law enforcement or the courts are unjust? I mean, does it make your blood boil when people are trying to steal elections or do things that just aren't right? Well, the trial of Christ that we're looking at, was unjust. No question about that. He was innocent, yet he was condemned to death. Now here's what I want you to understand, and I think it's so important that we understand. This unjust trial was God's sovereign plan to bring us grace. Look at Acts 2.22, speaking of Christ's crucifixion, says, Men of Israel, Hear these words, Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him. In other words, it's clear he was from God by the things he did. In your midst, you yourselves know this Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now the word delivered here is a word that is commonly uh, used of those who are surrendered over to their enemies. So what it's saying is that God delivered over Yeshua to death. He was delivered not by the will of men, not because men plotted out to kill the Lord and you know the Father looked down through eternity and saw what they were going to do and says, i got to figure out a way to deal with this. No, He was delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God laid out this plan. He marked it out. He said, this is My will. Yeshua will die on Passover by crucifixion. And though through Christ, unjust treatment, grace has come to all His elect. And it may seem strange to us that injustice can be part of the plan of a just God. But it often is. Would you say that Joseph being sold by his brothers as a slave was unjust? Would you say that his imprisonment by Potiphar was unjust? He was righteous. He did what he should have done and he ended up in prison for it. Notice how Joseph's father felt. He's like us. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. He's dealing with some difficult circumstances. He had lost his favorite son, Joseph. He thought he was dead. There's a famine in the land. Simon is now in Egypt, in prison. And... The prime minister is telling them they can't have food unless Benjamin comes back, Joseph's brother. So Benjamin 
the young son of Rachel, now appears to be gone also. Joseph is dead. Simeon is gone. They can't get more food unless Benjamin goes to Egypt. And Jacob responds, all this has come against me. Now, if you know the story, you've got to kind of smile when you read that. You ever been there? You ever felt that? All this is against me. At the very moment that Jacob uttered this, everything was working together for his good. Everything. Joseph was not dead. Joseph was alive. He was ruling the most powerful nation on earth at that time, Egypt. He was in the place where all the food was. And he was in control of it. And he could take and provide for his family during a famine. That's why he's there. God sent him there to provide. Through injustice, through his brothers hating him, selling him into slavery, through Potiphar, putting him in prison. You know, it's the very time when we think things are working against us that we need to realize our God's in control. And too often, we're just like Jacob. Everything looks bad. He didn't know what was happening. He didn't have a clue. But God was working the things together for their good. At this time in our Lord's life, the disciples are probably thinking, all these things are against us. I mean, they really didn't realize that all the injustice that was taking place was for the purpose of bringing them grace. We as children of God must come to realize that even violence and injustice are tools in the hands of the sovereign God. We need to learn to trust Him no matter what our circumstances. That's what it's all about. That's what He wants from us, to trust Him. Now, we've been talking about the fact that Yeshua had basically two trials. All right, He had an ecclesiastical or a religious trial before the leaders of Israel, and He had a civil trial before the Roman authorities. Now, the first trial was religious before Annas, and he was the political boss in Jerusalem. He wasn't the high priest at the time, but he controlled the high priest. The high priest was honest puppet, basically, because he was in control. He was the main man. The second trial was before Caiaphas, who was actually the high priest at that time. And the third trial was held at daybreak before the Sanhedrin. In order for a trial to be legal, it had to, be, it had to happen during daylight. So as soon as it got light, they had the trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, the ecclesiastical trial of our Lord ended with the verdict of guilty of the crime of blasphemy. And according to Jewish law, that was punishable by death. All right, so they wanted to put him to death. Now, normally, if somebody claims to be God, as Yeshua did, you would consider that blasphemy. But, when somebody heals the sick, raises the dead, walks on water, teleports boats to the pier, um, provides for thousands of people to eat with a few fish and a couple loaves of bread, and then they say they're God, maybe they should be listened to. Well, the next trial was civil. The religious leaders take him to Pilate. Pilate found no guilt in this rabbi from Nazareth, and Pilate didn't want anything to do with this, really. The next part of the trials before the Jewish monarch, Herod, who demanded a miracle. 
you know, he gets Yeshua, he says, hey, show me a trick. I heard a lot of things about you. Can you do some miracle for me? And Yeshua wouldn't talk to him. Didn't say anything. So he's like, I'm done with you. He sent him back to Pilate. All right? And Pilate, again, doesn't want to deal with him. His wife told him, don't, don't have anything to do with that man. I, I got a bad dream. All right? And so he puts it before the people. Hey, I could release him for you or I could release Barabbas. And they choose Barabbas. Now, so far we have seen the ecclesiastical trial ends with the verdict of blasphemy which brought the death penalty. The Jews wanted Yeshua dead, but they couldn't do that themselves. So they took him to Pilate. And our text for this morning starts, they led Yeshua from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now John 18, 28 through 19, 16 all describes Yeshua's trial before Pilate. We're just going to deal with half of it today. John reported way more than any other Gospels did about the trial before Pilate. But he doesn't mention the appearance of Yeshua before Herod. And Luke only records that. And we'll look at that so we can kind of try to patch this whole thing together. It says, the they who led Yeshua. Who's the they here? Well, it's some members of the Sanhedrin. They had just had a trial, and they're going with him because they're not just going to send him. They want to be there. They want to make sure Pilate does what they want him to do and put this man to death. So they go along with him to the Roman governor. It says they come to the governor's headquarters. Now The Greek word here is praetorion, which identified either the headquarters of the commanding officer of a Roman military camp or a Roman military governor's headquarters. Pilate's normal headquarters was in Caesarea which was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. But during the Jewish feasts, Pilate would come to Jerusalem with Roman troops because he had a whole lot of Jews together anticipating something. And he wanted to make sure they could keep it under control. So he would move with a whole bunch of soldiers into the fortress there right next to the temple and just kind of keep an eye on things. Now, archaeologists differ as to whether this headquarters was Herod's palace on the western wall or the fortress Antonia, which was named after Mark Anthony. Not the Mark Anthony that sings today, okay? Not that guy, this, a Roman guy, all right? Northwest of the temple complex, connected by the steps. It, they were actually connected. There was a set of stairs they could run right down the fortress, right into the temple, you know, to squash any kind of things that were going on. But many scholars now believe that the fortress of Antonio used uh, the praetorium there is where the trial was held. Well, here this governor at the time, is Pilate. So we're introduced to Pilate here for the first time, who is the governor. Pilate, I mean, you hear that name, and right away you think, well, this is the guy who ordered Yeshua to be put to death. You know, he's the one. Pilate's name in Latin means one skilled with a javelin. He was the Roman council for Judea and Samaria for 10 years from AD 26 to AD 36. So during the time that our Lord was put to death, he was the governor. Now, Pilate may have ended up in this position because he married well. Because he married Claudia, who was the daughter of Julia, who was the daughter of Augustus. So Pilate married into royalty. His father-in-law was Tiberius, who was emperor at the time. And it's most likely he got this appointment because he married into it. All right, He was the fifth Roman consul in this region, and the name Pontius means fifth. So Pontius is not his first name and Pilate's his last name, okay? He's the fifth, okay, emperor. Um, little is known 
prior to his coming to Jerusalem. They didn't know much about him because, like I said, he just married well, and since he married well, hey, why don't you go take this post? Um, but there's a lot recorded by Josephus about him. Philo of Alexandria records some stuff, and later Eusebius writes about him. None of them write anything good about him, but they write about him. Now, the region that he controlled for Rome was considered one of the most difficult postings. Okay, nobody wanted this because the combination of religious and political difference between the Romans and the Jews was very volatile. I mean, this was an explosive situation, so nobody really wanted to go there. All right, when Pilate governed Judea and Samaria, he was comparatively a young man. He was uh, they, they gauge he was probably in his late twenties, early thirties. He didn't like the Jews, and he wasn't afraid to show it. Okay, he didn't like making concessions to them, and you know he had proven rather cruelty in the past that he would just not put up with their stuff. But he was wary of them because they had some influence in Rome, and he knew he had to tread carefully if he wanted to keep his position. Now, the description of him as inflexible, merciless, and obstinate was a Jewish viewpoint, <laughs> but had some truth to it. He was quite ready to shed blood to have his way. He was a typical Roman procurator, a military man exalted above his rank as a demonstration of favor. But he had some idea of justice, and we see that as he's dealing with Yeshua. He does seem to care somewhat about what's going on there. Now, Lord Action of England is credited with the statement, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that's true of the power that Herod had, had, uh, Pilate had here. He just it went to his head, and he corrupted him, all right? Early in his appointment by the emperor Tiberius as procurator of Judea, Pilate moved his army by night from Caesarea into Jerusalem, bearing ensigns with the emperor's image. Now, previous rulers had avoided bringing any kind of image into Jerusalem since it offended the Jews who recognized it as emperor worshiper, worship and breaking the first and second commandment. So, Jews didn't like this, you know. But Pilate wanted to make his point that he was the governor of Judea and he would give honor to Caesar whenever he desired. So Pilate was still at his palace in Caesarea when this happened. I mean, he stayed there, he sent the ensigns down to put him in Jerusalem. So a large delegation of Jews incessantly pleaded outside his palace for five days. I mean, they were rioting, protesting basically outside the palace. All right, they wanted this stuff removed. So Pilate sent the soldiers on the sixth day, threatening death at their insults of Caesar. But the Jewish demonstrators, when the soldiers showed up, they prostrated themselves, they bared their throats to the Roman swords, showing their willingness to die. To rid Jerusalem of these idols. Well, Pilate relented, because he couldn't get away with massacring all these Jews, so he relented and he removed the images. Now, that doesn't sit well for a proud man, okay? So he had to back down from the Jews. So he's just angry. He doesn't like that. Well, after that, he appropriated funds from the sacred temple treasury, the Korban. He went to the Jews' treasury and took money out of it to build an aqueduct. Now, in response, the, Jew, the Jews were outraged about that, and they just you know, were protesting again because he stole this. So what to deal with them, he sent soldiers among them dressed as Jews armed with clubs, and they viciously beat and murdered many of the people, and the people finally shut up about him stealing their money. Additionally, 
He ordered golden shields placed in Herod's palace in Jerusalem, shields inscribed with Caesar's image. The Jews complained so strongly that the word came to the emperor who ordered Pilate to remove the shields and their offensiveness to the Jews. Now, even Yeshua told of an incident in which Pilate killed a group of Galileans and mingled their blood with the sacrifices they sought to offer. So he wasn't a big friend of the Jews. Now, Pilate's desire and demand for power finally caught up with him when a large number of Sumerians gathered at Mount Gerizim to search for hidden gold objects from the tabernacle. Some of them were armed, and Pilate saw this as a threat, so he sent troops in and massacred all of them. Well, a formal complaint reached Rome, and Pilate was removed for his office in disgrace. Rome didn't like it. It was political. They wanted they're trying to keep peace with the Jews, and he wasn't doing too well. Now, until 1961, there was no archaeological proof of the existence of Pontius Pilate. So, of course, people said the Bible's wrong. You know, the Bible's wrong. It has this, and no one ever found it. Well, guess what they found in 1961? Italian archaeologists were excavating an ancient theater in Caesarea, the Mediterranean port, which served as the Roman capital of Palestine. They unearthed a stone that bore a partial inscription bearing the name Pontius Pilate. They're like, look at that. The Bible is true. Isn't that amazing when these archaeologists finally catch up and learn things that the Bible says? Well, most of what we know about Pilate from the writings of the Jewish historians Josephus and Philo of Alexandria, is not very favorable. All right? Josephus confirms the slaughter of the Galileans that is mentioned in Luke 13.1, and the Roman historian Tacitus reports Pilate's actions against Yeshua. He writes this. He says, The Christ had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. All of the existing documentation of Pilate, all of it is negative except the biblical account. Now, isn't that interesting? The Bible doesn't have a lot of negative things to say about this man. In fact, in the writings of the early church fathers, he is regarded as a man who cooperated in God's plan of salvation. His image is found in early Christian art in the catacombs in Rome. The Orthodox Greek churches list both Claudia, his wife, and Pilate in their catalog of the saints. And some fathers of the church believe Pilate's wife Claudia was the Roman Christian lady who sends her regards to Timothy that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 4.21. It has been suggested that Pilate was ordered to commit suicide. He, was, he did commit suicide. We don't know why, but it's... We're, one of the stories is he was ordered to commit suicide because he and his family had embraced Christianity. So, we don't know. Maybe. I mean, you can see him before Christ, and you know he doesn't want to be involved in this. You know, he's kind of backed into a corner, and, you know, he wants to favor the people because he wants to keep his job, basically. So, he goes along with that. All right. So, that's just a little background of Pilate, who the Lord is standing before. Maybe he did become a Christian. You know, we don't know. It says it was early in the morning. Uh, the literal reading here, it was pori, which means dawn. Um, dawn would probably be a better translation of pori. This may be a reference to the technical term that the Romans used to describe the night watch, which began at 3 a.m. and ended at 6 a.m. So we're not exactly sure what time it is, but like I said, the Sanhedrin couldn't meet till the sun came up, so the Sanhedrin met, 
they had a must have had a quick trial because then they sent him off. All right, let's get rid of this. Send him. So it says they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. So they come to the governor's headquarters with Yeshua and they won't go in. This is an insult to Pilate who doesn't like the Jews. Hey, we're not coming in. Why? Your place is contaminated. We're not going in there. Why didn't they go in? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. How would they have been defiled by going into the praetorium? How would that have defiled them? The Jews thought that entering a Gentile's dwelling made them ceremonially unclean. Now, there's no such biblical mandate, okay? They made it up. But it was important to them. The rabbis had invented things like this to isolate themselves from the Gentiles. According to the Mishnah, which is the codification of Jewish law, we read this. The dwelling place of Gentiles is unclean. Now, a lot of debate over that. Some Jews just felt any Gentile was unclean. You know, we see that in Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes to Cornelius. You know, we're not allowed to come and, you know, be with people like you all. You know, that's what they believed. They just, it got to the point, it evolved to the point where Gentiles were, you know, they're supposed to take the gospel to them, but now they become defiled and they don't even want anything to do with them. Why were they considered unclean? Well, some just because they were Gentiles. They just figured Gentiles were unclean. But at this time particularly, some thought it was because the Gentiles might have yeast in their homes which would have been, you know, excluded the Jews from participating in Passover. Because it was unlawful for a Jew, according to Exodus 12, 19, and 13, 7, to have yeast, to be around yeast. It defiled them. If they entered a dwelling which all leaven wasn't removed, remember that's part of the, you know, the, un, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They go through the house and they search for all the leaven. They remove all the leaven. All right, so that, some think that, and that, I think that could be part of here, what's going on here. But the context of Mishnah Ohalith suggests rather that the reason why a Jew would contract uncleanliness in a Gentile home was because Gentiles believed were believed to bury their aborted fetuses in their homes or flush them down their drains. And Numbers 9, 7-10 through 10 insist that anyone who is unclean on account of contact with the corpse at the time of Passover can't participate in the feast. So if they're thinking these people are murdering their children and, you know, we can't go in their house. We don't want to be, you know, that's possible, all right? That could be what's going on here and just shows you that abortion is not a new thing, all right? People have been violating the law of God since God created it, all right? So the Bible taught that when a person touched a dead body, they're unclean for a certain period of time. But there was no law that said a Jew could not enter into a Gentile's home they added things to that, okay? Just like the church does today. Back then, they, this is bad, so that we'll, we'll make it be this. Like, I don't know of any verse in the Bible that says, you shall not go to movies. But most Baptist churches I know have that law written somehow into the Constitution or somewhere. And I'm like, I'm not sure where that comes from, you know? Secondary, third, and fourth separation, you know? <clears throat> huh? Yeah. <laughs> what is ironic here? Do you, do you see, I mean, do you see the, something in this text that just kind of makes you smile or makes you cringe? They don't want to be defiled. They don't want to be defiled. They trump, they 
made up these false charges because they're jealous of Yeshua. They want him killed, but we want him to be ceremonial clean, okay? They want, they're keeping their man-made laws while violating the very law of God. Exodus 20.16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. They're lying in order to achieve their goal of sending an innocent man to a horrible death. But they're worried about ceremonial defilement. People, this is religion. Okay? Religion makes up all these little things that you can't do this and you shouldn't do that and you can't do this while neglecting the Word of God. Worried about man-made rules. Violating the law of God. Yeshua called them out by saying, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing here. Oh, we can't, we don't want to be defiled because we want to celebrate Passover while we kill an innocent man. Yeah. <laughs> they're worried, these hypocrites are worried about ceremonial defilement by plotting murder. So the day would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. We want to celebrate the Passover. What day is it that this is happening, people? What day is it when he is standing before Pilate? It's Passover. The Passover was the Jewish celebration that reminded them of deliverance from slavery from Egypt. And for a long time, the Jewish nation had anticipated the time when God would send his special deliverer once again and deliver his people a second time. This liberator was closely linked to the Passover lamb. So it was the tradition at Passover to kill and eat a lamb while anticipating God's deliverance. And the huge irony here is that in order for these Jews to participate in the Passover celebration, they were actually conspiring to murder the very one who God had promised to be the Passover lamb. They're totally blind to all this. Oh, they know the Word of God, but they don't understand it. They don't get it. The Ten Commandments, they're violating several of the Ten Commandments here so they can keep a tradition. Verse 28 here, the end here, talking about Passover, clearly assumes that the Passover meal was eaten in evening. Passover lamb was killed on Passover. Once the sun went down, it's the first of unleavened bread. That's when the Passover meal was eaten. And so it's day, they're going to kill Yeshua and they're going to eat the meal at night, but they want to be okay to eat that meal. So they, you know. Now, I go to great depth on explaining how all that works out because there's so many arguments about what Was it the Passover that they ate? Was it Lord's Supper? What? So my message on, it's called the Last Supper on John 13.1 goes into great deal. So if you want that, go look it up. I don't have time to go over it again. I do, but we got food, so. <laughs> so Pilate went outside of them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? This must have kind of stopped them in their tracks. They were surprised. What? Um, wait a minute. Pilate, you knew we went to arrest this guy because you had sent soldiers with us. We figured you're just going to go along with us. Now we got to have evidence. Now you want another trial? You know, they were kind of taken back. And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So, they don't bring an indictment. They just say, trust us, Pilate. Trust us. He must be bad or we wouldn't have brought him. Uh, no. What's the accusation? I mean, I really think they're surprised here. They're like, here he is. Get him. Let's get this over with quickly. 
Roman law was very specific regarding this type of trial. It was a referral trial from the local indigenous rulers who were granted limited powers. This type of trial had to take place in the early part of the day so Roman authorities could attend to matters of the state in the afternoon. Uh, from all the writings, it's interesting. They're pretty much done with work by noon. Okay, they get up early, they get their work started, they're done by noon. They don't want to bother us afternoon, we're taking the rest of the day off, all right? So this trial would have begun with a verbal or a written accusation against the accused. This resulted in an interrogation of the accused by the chief magistrates. In this case, it would have been Pilate. Well, Luke gives us some more details here. Luke says this, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. So it makes it sound like the whole Sanhedrin went along. You know, let's, let's all go. We want to see this through. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. All right, so they bring three charges here. First, we found this man misleading our nation. The word translated misleading here is the Greek verb diastrepho, and it means to cause to depart from an accepted standard on oral or spiritual values. All these charges that they're bringing are political because blasphemy doesn't matter to Hare. Hare doesn't care who they blaspheme. Their God, he doesn't care about their God. So they have to bring some political charges. They've got to get charges you know, against the state. They were saying that Yeshua was stirring up unrest and rebellion against Rome. Did he ever do that? No, people, just the exact opposite. And that's what we have to understand. You know, he was never, never told people to take up arms, fight the government, overthrow Rome. No. My kingdom, he says, and we're going to look at, it's not of this realm. My soldiers don't fight. Just the opposite. He's promoting peace, but they're lying. Okay? They said, he's forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. That's a flat-out lie. He didn't oppose paying taxes. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. They knew that. They knew that. They're bearing false witness. He says, saying that he himself is Christ the King. Now, that one's true. Okay? But here's what they didn't understand. His kingdom was no threat to Caesar. In the text in John, they really don't give an accusation. They just say, trust us, he's guilty. We didn't expect you to have another trial. We already had one. You just kill him. All right? Well, Pilate responds, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You guys deal with it. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to, to put anybody to death. You know? So Pilate said, you just take him. Basically, I don't want anything to do with this. You guys deal with it yourself. And then the Jews say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This is a highly debated topic. All right? Did the Jews have the right to carry out capital punishment? The first century Jewish historian, Josephus, records that from the time that Judea became a Roman province, this was the law. He writes, when Rome took over Judea and began direct rule through a perfect in AD 60, capital jurisdiction was taken away from the Jews and invested in the governor. So Josephus seems to agree with what John's saying here, what the Jews are saying. They, they didn't have that law. The Jewish Talmud said this, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that's in AD 70, all right, that was when the temple was destroyed, 40 years further, in matters of life and death, were taken away from Israel. So that's be about 30 AD. Now, these times vary, 
you know, what Josephus says and what the Talmud says by about 25 years, but they're both saying the same thing, that the right of capital punishment was taken away. Well, was it? It may have been that the Roman governor gave the Jews power of capital punishment for religious offenses. All right, because listen, we know this. We know that in the temple, there was a sign that said, do not cross this barrier by penalty of death. For the Gentiles, they could go and worship God. In the, that's out there. That's the foyer. The court of the Gentiles is the foyer. The spiritual people are in here. But we got a sign out there. You can't come in here. We'll kill you. Makes people want to come worship, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't cross this wall. Now, that sign wouldn't have meant anything if they didn't have the power to carry it out, right? So we know that they, they did kill people for violating the temple. That was a religious thing, all right? We also know they stoned Stephen to death. Acts chapter 7 tells us that. But that wasn't during Passover, you know? I think the, the Jews got away with a lot of stuff during the normal day when it wasn't Passover. Now, it's Passover. This place is jammed. I mean, they could take the Roman troops that are there without a problem. There's so many Jews in, you know, it's just millions of them there, okay? They're packing the place out. And so, you know, I think he's saying that, you know, they don't have the right to do this unless it's given by the governor. I think the governor did give them the right. According to Josephus, James the Just was stoned in the 60s. Now, <laughs> I don't mean that kind of stoned in the 60s. <laughs> He was, he was stoned to death in the 60s, okay? Not our 60s. I know, I know. I, well, I wrote that. I said, that doesn't go together. Stoned in the 60s. And all you people know the 60s, so, all right. And, and that may be what Pilate means when he says, take him yourself and judge him. In other words, I gave you permission. You got religious matters under your own, own prerogative. You can kill him yourself. You can do that. Now, if this was the case, and if the Jews were allowed to use capital punishment for religious matters, Caiaphas and the authorities wanted Yeshua crucified, not stoned. Because their power, would they could stone people. They could not crucify. Only Rome could do that. And so I think the Jews here are saying, it's not lawful for us to crucify people. We want them crucified. We don't want them stoned. See, it's the religious authority's intention to disgrace Yeshua in the eyes of the people by having Him die in a cross, which would make Him cursed, according to Deuteronomy 21. What they don't realize is that Yeshua is sovereign, even over His own death, and it is His plan to die on a cross. Okay? They, they think they're doing something. We're going to put you to death on a cross. It's like, yeah, that's the plan. You know? This is the form of death that he himself had prophesied that was going to happen. He says in verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Yeshua had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now, what was to fulfill the word? Well, he says, it's not lawful. The Jews say it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. He says, this was to fulfill. The reason they said this is because Yeshua had prophesied that he was going to be crucified. They couldn't stone him. They didn't want to stone him. Look at Matthew 20, 18 and 19. So we were going up to Jerusalem. Yeshua is talking. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, predicting what's going to happen. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, 
and flogged and crucified. Predicting His death. Yeshua told this to Nicodemus. When He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, they took that pole and they attached the serpent to the pole. He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, I'm going to be lifted up, I'm going to be attached to a pole. Later in dialogue with the multitudes, Yeshua stated, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, put on a pole, will draw all men to Myself. But He was saying this to indicate the kind of death which He was going to die. So our Lord's own words by which He indicated how He would die, they're being fulfilled here. They want Him crucified. That's the plan. They don't know it's God's plan. They just want to do that because they hate Him. You know, it was not enough that Yeshua would die. It was not enough that He would die during Passover. It was not enough that He would die as the Passover lamb. It was necessary that He die on a cross. A Roman cross. Nothing could be worse than the death by crucifixion. And this is what the chief priests desired. They desired the death of our Lord by crucifixion in order that there be no question about the humiliating nature of our Lord's claims. They hated Him. They wanted the worst they could come up with for Him. So Pilate entered his headquarters and called Yeshua. So they're outside talking because they can't be defiled. They're spiritual. So he goes back inside and brings Yeshua in because he doesn't want them hearing what's going on. All right? And he says to him, are you king of the Jews? And Yeshua answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say this about me? So he asked him, are you the king? Now, if Pilate meant, are you a political king conspiring against Caesar? The answer is no. If he meant, are you the messianic king of Israel? The answer is yes. But king of the Jews is a loaded title. It implied that he was therefore planning rebellion. See, because many insurrectionists have taken that title king. And there, there had recently been an insurrection that had failed, and there were prisoners locked up at the time who had killed people during that insurrection, and one of them was called Barabbas. He's in prison right now for, for this, for murdering people. And so he's questioning him, are you a king? And so Yeshua said, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Had Yeshua given him a direct affirmation of the question and said yes, the proceeding would have been ended and Pilate would have had legal right to sentence him to die. But Yeshua didn't really give an answer. He just asked a question. Are you saying this by yourself or someone tell you I was king? You know, where, how'd you come up with this? So Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He says, am I a Jew? He's basically saying, listen, I'm a Roman. I don't have first-hand knowledge about your laws, your customs, and all that stuff. Your own nation turned you over to me. Your own nation delivered you up for me. All right? You know, this is confirmation of what we read in John 1.11. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. His own, the Jews. The Jews didn't want their king. So Yeshua answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. These are important verses, people. You know, I think we often use these against the dispensationalists saying it's not going to be a physical kingdom, but more importantly than that, I think we need to see it as he's saying, my, my, my servants do not fight, okay? They're not warriors. That's not the issue here. This is a spiritual kingdom, all right? 
If my kingdom were this world, my servants would be fighting. This is a second-class conditional sentence, which is called contrary to fact. And it could be translated, if my kingdom were this world, and it's not, then my servants would be fighting, which they're not. And by servants, I think he means angels. Okay, In other words, if he wanted to take this thing over by force, they got nothing. Okay, Nothing. The Roman army's got nothing against his army. Yeshua is a king. He has a kingdom, but his kingdom is not the type of kingdom that would compete with Caesar's kingdom. It's no threat to Caesar's kingdom. Yeshua is no political revolutionary. His kingdom is not of this world. He is saying in very plain words that his kingdom is not physical. It's not geographic. It's spiritual. It's otherworldly. It's not of this physical realm. So, Yeshua is a king by nature. He's a king over a spiritual domain. Now, I know that you know, the dispensationalists are waiting for you know, the Lord to come back for a thousand years and sit on, sit on the throne of David. And, and he's saying, no, it's not physical. I'm reigning, and I'm reigning right now. Colossians 1.13 says, He rescued us, believers, from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're in the kingdom, people, right now. This is kingdom living. We have kingdom laws. We live in a kingdom. It is a spiritual realm. Wherever we go, we can get together and enjoy it. Okay? It's spiritual. He says it is not from this world. Now, I like the way the New American does, says it better. New American says he is not from this realm. I think that gives you kind of a better understanding. The Greek here is ouk and chuthen, which literally means not from this place. And that, that gives you the same idea, the literary, not from this realm. Not from, my kingdom is not from this place. All right? It's not a physical thing. It's not something that's involved like that. All right, so then Pilate says to him, Oh, so you are a king. Yeshua answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He says, For this purpose I was born. This is his humanity. I was born for this purpose. Then he says, For this purpose I've come into the world. That's his deity. He existed before He was born. He existed in heaven. He came into the world. You have His humanity, I was born. You have His deity, I have come into the world. We've seen that all through this Gospel. He says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He came to reveal God. And He said that. He said, Philip, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I came to reveal God to you. This is what God looks like. Look at Me. Watch Me. Hear Me. I'm revealing truth. God is truth. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, so, not everybody listens to the voice. Those who can discern the truth are those who have been given to Him by the Father. He stresses this all through this Gospel. You have to be given. You have to be one of the elect. The Father had to give you. Everyone doesn't have their eyes open to see. Everyone who's of the truth, though, listens to me. So, Pilate, if you're of the truth, you'll listen. If you're not, you're not going to. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? That's sarcastic. What is truth? He scoffs at him. Well, Yeshua is the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth because Pilate was not of the truth, or at least not his time then. He had no idea what truth was, although it was standing right in front of him. He missed it. What is truth? 
And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. He goes back out to tell the Jews, he says, I find no guilty. He asks a question and he walks away. Because he didn't want to even really care for the answer. What's well, true? He just walks away. Now, what's interesting here, he says, I find no guilt in him. All right, this is the first of three times that Pilate will judge Yeshua and find him innocent using the same phrase. It's used here, it's used in 19.4 and 19.7. And the irony is that any animal offered to Yahweh in sacrifice had to be judged perfect without flaw. And he says, I don't find any flaw in him. Okay, here's what's cool. Caiaphas was the high priest, right? Caiaphas had chosen the Lamb of God, Yeshua, to be the sacrificial victim. He announced that Yeshua had come to die three times. Caiaphas announces that. John 11.50, 11.52, and 18.14. But Pilate, a heathen Gentile, judged the intended sacrifice as without blemish. So this is all just, you know, John, all behind the scenes, John saying, you people understand this. You know, this is the Lamb of God being sacrificed. And now, three times, he's, there's no guilt in this, all right? Now, between verses 38 and 39, and the white spaces there, you got to jump to Luke, okay? Because Luke gives us the trial before Herod, who uh, his palace was close by. So let's jump over there, just read to the text so we know what's going on here. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. All right, that's what we read in John. But then they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. Hey, that's good. He's under Herod's jurisdiction? Go, you deal with him. I mean, he thought, this is a break for me, man. I don't want this. I don't want to mess with it. Send him to Herod. All right? Who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Yeshua, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wanted to say, I heard you do all these cool tricks. Walk on water, raise dead people. I want to, can you do something for me? I mean, I said, just show me a sign. You know? That's what he wants. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Yeshua never responded to Herod. As the Bible says, like a lamb before the shears, he opened on his face. He didn't say anything. Now watch. The chief priests and the scribes stood by. So guess what? They follow him. He leaves Pilate. They follow him over to Herod. And they're there with Herod, vehemently accusing him. So they're there. They want to make sure they get their verdict pushed through. All right? And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendor and splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So they follow him, and then he sends him back to Pilate. All right? Herod mistreats Yeshua, sends him to Pilate, and here Lazarus takes up the narrative, and he says, so he's back before Pilate. This is the second time before Pilate. This is the, the last part of the trial. He says, uh, he's saying to the Jews, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, the custom that he mentions here has no clear evidence outside the gospel accounts. This is the only evidence we have in the Bible. Roman history does indicate that the emperor made special concessions to the Jews that it didn't make for other peoples. And it's possible that on the certain Jewish festivals, um, such as Passover and others, that the prisoner would be released to kind of 
improve the Jewish-Roman relations. So I'll pick out a prisoner and I'll let him go. How about I let this Yeshua go? So the crowd cries out, not this man, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Okay? So they say, we don't want this man. All four Gospels tell us of Barabbas. Because he's an important in the play. All right? Everyone wants to make sure you know Barabbas. All right? The name Barabbas in Hebrew would have been Ben Abbas, which means what? What does Ben mean? Son? Abba? Son of the Father. Ah, Son of the Father? Doesn't that apply to Yeshua? So here he's called, Barabbas is called Son of the Father. You know what's really interesting? In Matthew, there are some ancient manuscripts that have the name Yeshua Barabbas at this point, rather than just Barabbas. For example, here's the NET translation says, at that time, they had in custody a notorious prisoner named Yeshua Barabbas. So after they assembled, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release from you? Yeshua Barabbas or Yeshua, who is called the Christ? Now the name Yeshua wasn't rever... Well, it's not today either, but the name Jesus, Yeshua, wasn't reverential at that time. A lot of people had that name. Origin refers to very early manuscripts which contain this Yeshua Barabbas. And if you think about it, it's hard to imagine that Christian scribes added the name Yeshua to Barabbas. You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But it would make sense that they took it out. Okay? Very easy to understand that. Let's suppress this. We don't want that name Yeshua stuck there with Barabbas. And so they took it out. It wasn't in any of the other Gospels, so they say, let's just pull it out here. It may well be that it originally read Yeshua, who was called Barabbas. And the New English Bible here is so confident that they just put it in there. They put it in the text. And then there's good textual evidence for this. This makes sense when you notice how Pilate addresses the crowds by describing Yeshua as the one who is called Christ. In other words, he's contrasting the name with someone who bore the same name. So he goes, do you want me to release for you Yeshua Barabbas or Yeshua who is called to Christ? Which Yeshua do you want me to release? Is what he's saying. Now the next verse in Matthew is interesting. He says, for he knew, he's talking to Pilate, he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him. Pilate seems to understand that the motivation of these Jewish authorities to kill him is jealousy. And that's the word there. It's jealousy. This connects, I think, Yeshua's death to the very first murder recorded in Scripture. Jealousy led Cain to murder his innocent brother Abel, and Yeshua's Jewish brethren want to murder him for the very same reason. They're jealous. He's too popular. The crowd's like him. They're not listening to us. This is wrong. we got to kill him. And then it closes by saying, Barabbas was a robber. Now the word for robber here is leistes, which is commonly used in the first century Palestine for roving brigands that were involved in terrorist activity against the Roman government. So these are domestic terrorists, basically. But, unfortunately, many of these brigands pillaged, robbed, raped Jews as well as Romans. So they became outlaws under the guise of freedom fighters. In other words, we're against Rome, but while we're at it, we'll just kill Jews too. They they just killed everybody. I mean, they, they were not good people, okay? They were terrorists. Now the crowds call for the release of a man who has committed murder in his struggle against Rome while condemning a man falsely accused of being a danger to Rome. 
He's spoken against Rome. We want him put to death. But Barabbas is a murderer. Let's let him go free. What is the irony here? It's crazy. Peter preaching to the Jews in Acts says this, but you denied the Holy One and the Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. The perversion of the Jews was so great in John's mind that they chose a Barabbas instead of Christ. Now let me ask you something, believers. Who does Barabbas represent in this text? He represents Gary Hardison. He represents Jeff McCormick. He represents John Clark. Kim Hofer. Glenn, even Glenn Hill. Okay? We're going to put even Glenn in that category. Because people, here's the thing. He represents us. He represents us. He represents all the elect of God, all those who have been given by the Son from the Father. Barabbas found himself walking free because Yeshua died in his place. I think it would be fair to read between the lines here in this text and say that the cross Yeshua hung on was intended for Barabbas. And rather than hang that day on the cross, he's released. It isn't hard to realize that Barabbas is a picture of you and me. He paints a vivid picture of what Yeshua did for you and me. He had been judged and legally condemned. Barabbas was guilty. Barabbas deserved to die. He could do nothing to free himself. He took the place. Yeshua takes Barabbas' place and dies on Barabbas' cross while Barabbas is released. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. In this story, we see the doctrine of substitution. Christ died for sinners. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who is the us here? If you go back in the text, he's talking to believers. Christ died for us. Believers. He didn't die for the world. He died for His elect. Christ died for us. The idea of substitution, of Christ being condemned and suffering and dying in our place, is fundamental to the Christian faith. It, in contrast to every other form of religion, we hold to a gospel of grace. A gospel which is unearned. A gospel which is undeserved. A gospel which is unmerited favor. We are forgiven not because our so-called good works outweigh our bad works. We have eternal life not because we do our best to live up to a moral code. On the contrary, we know that our good works are insufficient. We constantly fail to meet God's perfect standards of righteousness. And we deserve judgment. Not acceptance and approval. But rather, we, re we deserve rejection. We deserve condemnation. Our hope is not based on anything we have done or could do. But entirely on the fact that Yeshua, the sinless Lamb of God, gave His life in exchange for ours. Believers, if you are trusting anything in and of yourself, you are lost, you are confused, 
The gospel is all about what Christ did for you. He didn't do part of it. He didn't do three quarters of it. He didn't do 99% of it. He did it all. And he paid for your sin, past, present, and future. Every sin you ever commit is already covered by his blood. That's grace, people. That's grace. He paid our penalty. Peter put it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. Our sins. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We have been healed. The reality is, people, we're guilty. We deserve the cross. We deserve eternal punishment. Yet for all who trust Him, God gives eternal life. Look what Paul said to the Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse. Because the Bible says, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And He hung on a tree and became a curse for us. So that in Christ Yeshua, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. We're children of Abraham. And Abraham's seed is Christ, and we are in Christ, and we receive all the promises that God made to Abraham through Christ. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. People, this is the Gospel. And this is what Lazarus is hinting at all through here. People who deserve nothing but the wrath of God can know what it is to be set free because another has suffered and died in their place. And Yeshua paid it all. Every last bit of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the privilege, Lord, to come before You to look at Your Word, Lord, to see how John weaves this story, Lord, showing the irony, showing so many double references here so we can see behind the scenes what he's talking about. Lord, the irony of these hypocrites trying to remain ceremonially pure why they put you to death. But Father, we know the plan was your plan. It was carried out exactly as you wanted it to be. And the injustice of your death was so we might receive grace. Father, we thank you. Lord, I pray that understanding what you have done for us would motivate us, would us, would drive us to want to live in a way that brings glory to you. That we would realize, Father, that we are your image bearers. We bear the image of the Father before a lost and dying world. May we do it honorably. May we do it completely. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.